Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Listeners, and welcome to another episode of Get Off My World, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. We're going to start today's episode with a new thing for us, listener letters. You guys, we've received a letter. We have a listener. (laughs) (laughs) Documented proof of said listener. We have a letter from Dr. Doug S. of Iowa. Regarding our episode of a few weeks ago, in which you, Calvin, attacked the episode Kill the Moon. With good reason, I think. (laughs) Uh, We asked our fans to chime in via social media or at getoffmyworld.com at gmail.com to say whether you had done an adequate job of savaging that episode Mm -hmm. or whether Josh had sufficiently uh, protected it. Well, anyway, Dr. Doug S. says, I'm voting with Kelvin here. And he makes two points. One, Josh makes the point that the episode must be consistent with itself. Evaluating by that criterion, the episode fails. Because the episode is supposed to take place in a world where, for example, rocks are minerals. (laughs) his second point says I can suspend my disbelief when watching a television show but if the reality can be so different from our own as in the moon is an egg and the creature lays eggs that look just like the moon in its original orientation that we move to complete ridiculousness the episode is not consistent with the world in which it takes place Uh, He makes the further point that also Josh has a child who watches Doctor Who with him. (laughs) My daughter doesn't like Doctor Who anymore, and my wife doesn't either since two-thirds of the way through the Matt Smith era, so Josh and his happy life. (laughs) As long as it's not personal, Doug. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Doug S. of Iowa. Listeners, please send us all of your letters. Yeah, yeah, this is cool. Now, to our regularly scheduled program. Uh, We always start these episodes of Get Off My World with something we like to call temporal grace, where even though we can get awfully cranky at times, especially Kelvin, (laughs) we always make room to talk about certain things that we love about Doctor Who or the universe of Doctor Who. And this week, Josh, why don't you start? I have found myself in eager anticipation of the 10th Doctor box set from Big Finish which concerns me. (laughs) (laughs) The David Tennant box set. The David Tennant 10th Doctor box set. And I'm not sure what has happened. Maybe it's because Day of the Doctor gave me a slightly better picture of the 10th Doctor. Maybe it's because I have fond feelings toward Big Finish. But I listened to the recent trailer. It has a lot of the silliness, the energy of David Tennant without a lot of the angst at least in the trailer, and it, it ends with David Tennant doing a imitation of the TARDIS takeoff sound, which is uh, <laughs> frighteningly good, and, and it was in that moment that I felt the money leaving my wallet <laughs> to buy this box set. So maybe with some time, David Tennant's portrayal of the Doctor will move from the bottom of the list for me a little higher after some audio Do adventures. we know who's writing it? Is it Russell T.? 
It is not Russell T. It is uh, Matt Fitton, who mm -hmm. writes a lot of stuff for Big Finish. We'll be talking about at least one of his scripts a little later in the show today. James Goss, who wrote some stuff for Big Finish recently, including the um, River Song box set, mm -hmm. who wrote a really good script there, too. I'm blanking on the third writer. Um, but yeah, so some different voices on the Tenth Doctor and me having to confront my ten hate. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. Kelvin? I found out that the Globe Theater is doing some sort of Shakespeare project, and I, I, I'm going to botch all the details of it now, but it's something called like the Long Walk, and it's just like a lot of video segments along a walk along the Thames, and Peter Capaldi is involved in it. And he's he's playing Titus Andronicus. Oh Lord! Oh, wow! <laughs> I just saw Peter Capaldi involved in Shakespeare Project, and the first thing that leapt to my mind was, it's going to be Titus Andronicus. <laughs> <laughs> They're all filmed in different parts of the, the world, and he's, so apparently he shot this short film in Rome. Another person who's involved, uh, Haley Atwell, mm -hmm. uh, who plays Agent Carter, is. Uh, one of the Shakespeare plays I know nothing about. She's she's a character from Cymbeline, mm -hmm. and I believe Jonathan Price, who was the master in *The Curse of the Fatal Death*, is uh, Shylock. All right. And there's probably a couple other Doctor Who related actors involved in this. But yeah, there's going to be a, a short film with Peter Capaldi eating someone's kids in a pasty. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Well, mine this week is uh, my wife and I have been watching this BBC television, or Thames TV, I guess, production called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes from the early 1970s, mm -hmm. 1971, 1973, I think. The context here is that, you know, when Sherlock Holmes uh, was new, was recent, he was so incredibly popular that there were millions of imitations almost immediately, the vast majority of which are totally forgettable and, and garbage, but some of which have some intriguing elements to them. And so there was a series of books in the early 1970s called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, The Further Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, etc., uh, edited by Hugh Green, who, among other things, was the head of the BBC at the time, the BBC controller, and Graham Greene's brother. How's that for a family? Um, so the fact that he was so uh, well-placed in the BBC probably is the reason why there was almost immediately a television adaptation of some of the stories, and they're all worth seeking out and watching. <clears throat> We have tons of great um, uh, actors that you recognize. Mm -hmm. Donald Pleasance plays Karnacki, the ghost finder. Yeah. William Hope Hodgson's stories. But I, I single it out tonight because a few days ago we were watching the seventh episode of series one, Madam Sarah, and on screen comes Caroline John as a somber, serious Brazilian lady. <laughs> uh, and then after half an episode of mysterious speculation, we are finally introduced to the sinister Senor Silva. And it's played by, can you guess? John Burley. Good guess? Roger Delgado. Oh! I was almost going to say William Hartnell. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this was aired in, I, I think, October of 1971, so it was probably filmed very soon after Caroline John left Doctor Who, and either while Roger Delgado was filming his first Doctor Who season or shortly after. Uh, so that was the most Doctor Who-y of all of these. But, you know, the very next episode, we get a pre-Blake 7 Jacqueline Pierce, Ooh, wow. about whom we'll also be talking 
uh, quite a bit about more later. Uh, and the very next episode after that, a cameo by John Levine as a constable. <laughs> so for all Doctor Who fans, especially 1970s Doctor Who fans, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes is well worth checking out. And now round two special topics, Dalek. And today's question for you guys is this. What Doctor Who action figures, singular or action figure sets, would you like to see that would be awesome or absurd or both? I've got one. Uh, I'm inspired by something that we're going to be talking about later in the episode. But I have never yet seen a Varga plant action figure. <laughs> Here's the thing. It could be like a normal like space marine or space traveler type figure, but then you smear on that Chia Pet kind of stuff <laughs> to it, and you water it, and then it'll grow like evil thorns. And if you can make it somehow kind of walk around, maybe it has a radio control device in it, and make sure that you're seeding it with poisonous plants, then I think <laughs> that would be like a really, really good gift for my new <laughs> If you, if, you awesome. have, if you have enough of them clumped together, you could turn it into a crinoid. Very oh, good. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, this this concept can really be extended, I yeah. think. We yeah. could do megloths mm -hmm. with thorns. Those plant things that attack uh, the third doctor when he finally gets to... What was the name of it? That, that planet he always wants to get to because it's supposed to be so beautiful. And he Metabolist finally, 3? Yeah, and he finally gets there and it's like all like killer plants. And, <laughs> and, right. So you want to go with the big killer plant action figure box set. Yeah. Well, I think so. You know, it might not be affordable to have them all in the same one. You have, probably have to break it down into smaller ones so that the kids can bug their parents for it, right? <laughs> now, this is an idea that my son Aaron presented to me, but I have to share because I actually would really pay good money for this. They've already made a Green Death third doctor that comes with the maggots, but he suggested a box set that comes with uh, the third doctor dressed as a milkman and the third doctor... <laughs> Dressed as an elderly cleaning lady. <laughs> and that Babu. would be gold. I would yes. play with those daily. You could also have a, a shower set where you can remove <laughs> your doctor's clothes. and Yeah, the whole third doctor box set. And they could come with little bits of naked Benton from the end of Time Monster that <laughs> you collected all the third doctor action figures to assemble all his parts, so to speak. It, it probably already exists because it's the modern era, but... Uh, it's probably a handles action figure. There is a handles. Yeah, I thought figure. there was. I wish it came alone because that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> giant packaging with just a tiny Cyberman little. head rattling around in the box. <laughs> That'd be pretty hilarious. I'm trying to think of like one of the weird boxy old Doctor Who things, like a like a croton or a quark. Or a war machine. Or a war machine. A war machine would be awesome. Kroll. 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 A Kroll action Kroll. figure to scale. <laughs> so it's cool. like it's like four feet across or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, scale action figures would be fine because then you could have a, a set from Planet of the Giants. Oh so yes, they were actual size. <laughs> That's great. That would be awesome. The last one I want to mention is a mind robber Jamie, who is the <laughs> based on the actor who played him for the one episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, the mind robber thing is actually interesting because they have that ridiculous, like, oh, we need to assemble Jamie's face, yeah. and they got the eyes and the nose and stuff, and she puts it together in the wrong way, and that's why we come up with the actor who was not Fraser Hines. Yeah. But now we could have something that was exactly that, like a magnetic backing board with little features on it that you put into uh, into position, and then a 3D printer prints out <laughs> a Jamie that has Your those figures Jamie. on it. I think. Patent this. That's kind of awesome. Let's get to the patent office right now. Or how about like an action figure that's literally just a broken star pin? Oh. <laughs> Does it have a little chip in there that plays sad music? Yeah. <laughs> We're awful. No, Matthew Waterhouse was awful. <laughs> okay, next up, guys, it's time for the randomizer. Do, 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 do. And our. Uh, Massively complex uh, selection machine. <laughs> Wound up picking the uh, final episode or final story of season three of the first Doctor era, The War Machines, written by Ian Stuart Black from an idea by Kit Pedler. I yeah. say. He created the Cybermen. Another real attempt in the 60s to make another Dalek thing that kids would get super excited about. Yeah. It seems like they're constantly coming up with a big clunky machine. Yeah. That terrorizes and kills. Ooh, boy. Yeah, this was a real failure of design with the war machine. No, it really doesn't work. Yeah, whatever the merits of the story, these things make the Daleks look svelte and agile. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they tried to, like, just, oh, we'll make it big and imposing, but it just kind of became big and dumb. Their weapons, by the way, are effective at 30 feet. (laughs) 30 feet. I remember hearing that and thinking, like, what the hell kind of stupid war machine is this? I know Napoleonic armies that could shoot literally ten times further than that. (laughs) Richard the Lionhearted's longbowmen (laughs) would decimate Yes, the Battle of Azhigor would be very different. And and just add the one, like, really dumb hammer arm that has no range. <laughs> yes. It can't go to the side. God help you if you get directly in front yes. of a war machine. But let's say you were to put your head down underneath that hammer. You'd be in trouble. Mm. <laughs> you'd be effed up by that war machine. But That's the war machine's entire method. I dare you to put your head right there. <laughs> okay, Mr. Machine. <laughs> I'll this, see your bet. The choice of steam as the weapon. Yeah, um, and it was very unclear whether that was a death gas, but at one point, um, a war machine shot an inanimate object and it burst into flames. Mm-hmm. It seems to leave scorch marks on the uh, control panels mm-hmm. in the final scene too. Uh, I don't know; it's kind of the go-to prop for a lot of this period. They they used they used fire extinguishers or steam or something like it in the Dalek movies, the Peter Cushing Dalek yes. movies. Yeah probably got tired of just trying to create different optical effects, like mm-hmm. the the negative reversals of the Daleks, or later on, I think the ice machines, mm-hmm. or not the ice machines, the, the ice warriors, <laughs> the ice warriors' guns make the film go like in and out. Yep. So yeah. it, they wanted to do some practical effect instead of an optical one. And what are they going to do? Squirt water? Yeah. Fire a gun? <laughs> I don't know. It's strange to me that this design of the war machines is essentially going to be something that they revisit for almost like 25 years in the show, though. The, the cleaning robots yeah, in Paradise yeah. Towers look a lot like the war machines. Or that, the yeah, tractators drilling machine the drilling people thing, yeah. and the heads embedded in the front of it look a lot like this. Um, there's a 
slimmer version of it in the mysterious planet like a guard robot in the sixth mm -hmm. doctor era it's just slow moving unimpressive lumbering boxes <laughs> will <laughs> i'm sure continue so. to play doctor who to, a box is easy to construct <laughs> that's what i was going to say yeah. you know and it's like well we have to have a guy riding his tricycle <laughs> to move this thing and the Daleks have kind of cornered the market on any sort of vaguely cylindrical design. Yeah, they literally only built one war machine. Do we never see more than one war machine? They changed the number on it for different shots, but they literally <laughs> only built one war machine. I will say this: that from a directing standpoint, they are aware of the weaknesses and they fight to make the fight scenes interesting by dramatic angles, mm -hmm. weird cuts, yeah. very stylized presentation of these fights to sort of compensate for the inertness of these war machines. And, and I think it's at least visually interesting to watch because some of it looks very different from a lot of Doctor Who in that way. Oh, I think so too. It, it matters too that it was the last episode of this season because at this point in Doctor Who's history they're always just out of money by now. They literally have like no money whatsoever so uh, I think that's probably why they're filming so much on location mm -hmm. so they were somehow able to use uh, film that was more expensive than video but probably in the cost benefit analysis it was better than building a bunch of indoor sets. And, uh, so I wonder in its day when viewers watched it if its contemporary setting made it more ho-hum because to me the contemporary setting now that it's so many years later it's is the best, the part, best of part of it yeah, absolutely yeah, well yeah i mean 60s london you know they were the they, they were trying to focus on uh, the post office tower can i read my favorite quote from wikipedia about the post office tower? oh sure now yeah. called the bt i suppose that's british telecom tower finished in july 1964 opened in october 1965 and then opened officially to the public in may 1966 so that was just a few months uh, before this was transmitted. Mm -hmm. The quote from Wikipedia is, Upon its completion, the location of the tower was designated in official secret, and it did not appear on ordnance survey maps, despite, <laughs> despite being a 177-meter-tall structure in the middle of central London that was open to the public for about 15 years. All uh, oh, those wacky Brits. <laughs> So we've denigrated the war machine design, yeah. I think, correctly. But there's a lot to like about the war machines, I think. Um, it's Strangely, it's a proto-unit story. There is no unit in it, but the British Army is, yeah. is called out to get themselves slaughtered by the alien menace of the day. It, 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 this might be the first time we ever see the Doctor work with a contemporary or Earth I think military it is. or government. I think as it is advisor. So yeah, the doctor is working with Sir Charles. What's his name? Yeah. Remind me how why he's doing that. It's he, very unclear. I was wondering if this. Yeah. Is, like we could retroactively say this is the first use of the psychic paper because he just steps out of the TARDIS. He has that weird moment where he senses alien presence and he does weird hand gestures to say the skin's crawling on his hand uh -huh. and they just go in there and they walk in. And everyone's like, oh, hey, and starts telling them all about Wotan. It does seem to happen incredibly quickly and easily where he just sort of impresses everyone as, a, as an expert on technology and science and stuff. They rely on him really heavily yeah. as it goes on. It's, it's a little mm -hmm. odd because it's like, hey, the old guy in the cape. I don't know where he came <laughs> from, but uh, <laughs> let's see what he thinks. We don't even really know his name. But it's another one of those fairly unusual episodes where something big happens in a contemporary setting and it seems to have actual real-world impact and effects. 
Yeah, they have the newscasters. There's they have been, radio like, broadcasts. We're being invaded by robot tank things, you know, and it's like clearly a thing is happening. The killer line, of course, is the newscaster saying, the city of London has responded with characteristic calm to the emergency. <laughs> <laughs> it's like right in the middle of the emergency, you yeah. can't help stroking your own back. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a, it's, it's, it's a little cultural smugness, and B, it's also kind of a way of explaining, say, I was just in London in 1966, and I didn't notice any <laughs> signs of panic anywhere. Yes. There, were, there were several scenes of the newscaster saying things like that, and also people in a pub, for example, watching the newscaster. That reminds me very much of Quatermass. Ten years earlier, there were lots of scenes of people in pubs watching things happen on the television, Quatermass in the Pit especially. And it casts forward to something that Russell T. Davies would go to the well many times to underscore how world-shaking all of these catastrophes are. The newscaster, this other newscaster that we've seen before, the American newscaster, this fourth newscaster. (laughs) Oh, that must be a really big emergency. Well, of course... We have the departure of Dodo and the arrival of Ben and Polly. The worst companion departure in the show's history. Uh, I cannot even ever mention Dodo to my wife without her going, <laughs> Ah, Dodo's the worst. She just sent the key back with Ben and Polly and blah, blah, blah. That's, yeah. not, that's not what Carrie sounds like, but that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, but I can't disagree either. I always thought Carrie sounded very pirate-like. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia says, quote, Jackie Lane's contract expired midway through this production of this story. You can certainly tell. There's that quality with Dodo in this whole episode, though, where she's treated pretty shabby. She gets immediately taken over by the supercomputer. Photon. They take her to the swinging 60s bar. She has a terrible headache, and Ben could care less. He's just off dancing with Polly, and then she's just left to sit there all alone until finally Book John calls her at the bar. Which is, <laughs> I don't know why I find that hilarious. <laughs> Nobody will talk to her. No one will hang out to her. She actually gets a call at the bar. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Ever think about computer dating? <laughs> uh, but, but what I, I am very uh, amused and charmed by, you know, 1966 BBC's idea of what like a really swinging nightclub is like. <laughs> you know? Somebody watched a hard day's night once. Yes, <laughs> and then they did it on whatever budget they possibly could. But honestly, like like my my favorite thing in in this whole story is just the whole introduction of Ben and Polly. They get established very quickly. You, you you know who they are right away and they're cool. They seem to be of their time. I like Ben and Polly quite a bit, but it is almost as if the program itself is acknowledging how interchangeable the companions are. Mm-hmm. Like, oh okay, they're they're fun for the entire time and they act as companions, but at the end, oh they have a they have keys now and oh they're in the TARDIS, and this time it's a sailor man and a dolly bird, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Because really, this is the end of the third season, so by now, companion arrivals and departures in Doctor Who are pretty established. They're pretty established. There's always one young 
woman mm -hmm. and usually a young man. And there's no overlap. Previously, I think there'd all been overlaps where uh, one companion left, but someone you already were familiar with. Well, Dodo, Dodo overlaps for this story, for the first two episodes of the story. But I yeah, guess you're right. But yeah. you're right in, in a broader sense. Yeah, I got to think, too, it must have been a pretty unpleasant working environment on Doctor Who at this time. Hartnell was... Getting pretty cranky. Really irascible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's one of the reasons Jackie Lane decided to leave. I don't even know if people thought the show was going to continue or if they'd already decided to replace Hartnell at this time. Yeah, he certainly can barely get out more than two lines in a row without flubbing the line somehow. Yeah. Stammering over Although, pretty much every um, other sentence. The ending shot of episode three is pretty cool. It's his great hero shot. Yeah, when and he just stands there like, I am not getting the hell out of the way of this war machine. I'm just going to stand here and old guy stare down. Yeah, unusually, even considering what you said, Josh, and I, that's totally correct, this is still one of William Hartnell's best Doctor Who stories, I think partly because he happens to be around mm -hmm. without saying a whole lot, and events are just swirling around him, and people are looking to him for guidance. He's really become the star, ironically. He's, he's far more assertive as the Doctor than in earlier stories where the strong male companion or the emotional or intellectual female companion would guide him a lot and here he is the guiding force he's also really kind of a bastard at the end which he doesn't care about polly at all nope he's just like eh, if we thought about every person uh, or if we thought about a single person we'd never get anything done or he has some line to that effect and he sends the um, reprogrammed war machine to blow up uh wotan knowing that there's all these mind controlled innocent people there who are probably going to get murdered in the crossfire yep it's a badass William Hartnell move. It really is. There should have been so much more William Hartnell like this. Mm -hmm. People should have recognized his weaknesses earlier and written around them yeah. to this degree. And, and a little less riveting warehouse footage. Random people just carrying crates to <laughs> random parts of the warehouse with no discernible pattern. Oh my god, though, I love that, though, because it really, I mean, what I love about the War Machines is all that location footage. <laughs> oh, here's some industrial footage. Here's yeah. some aer an aerial shot of the city of London from the radio. No, I, I was thinking of the obviously staged warehouse footage with the, uh, oh. the guy in the mustache literally just standing there going, Work! Work! <laughs> <laughs> and people just lugging boxes like faster. Well, they all have that like weird uh, the W. That yeah, the weird computer font W. Like, which, honest to God, I kept seeing through the uh, the story, and it wasn't for for an embarrassingly long time that I realized, oh, that's a W for Wotan. <laughs> Just thought it was a sideways E? Yeah. Or a sideways 3? Yeah. I, or an upside down M? Yeah, I, I didn't get it was a W for the longest time. No, Wotan is an egomaniac. <laughs> label all of his boxes. So, sexual politics in this episode, not the greatest. <laughs> Polly's very independent and strong, but of course we, we are introduced to her as a cracking typist um, who's a bit cheeky. <laughs> you know, so. I, mean, I was thinking Ben specifically. Oh, okay. His, uh, I don't know if it was supposed to be a little lampoonish, and he's not unlikable, but 
He's a <laughs> sailor. It, you know, Dodo's a nice bird, friendly, not like you, Duchess, <laughs> which is, I think, what they call negging now. And he also gets pretty physical with her later. Okay, okay she's mind-controlled or mm -hmm. whatever, but there's a lot of... Michael Craze, I gotta say, throws himself into this role He's with a, a lot of enthusiasm. Physical, yes, a very physical actor. He freaks out in that warehouse. He's yeah. totally like, oh my god, everything's crazy! And it's really, really swinging for the rafters there. And, and I wonder if he sweats that badly or if they like added the sweat to make him look extra It's really hot in the warehouse. I don't know. He didn't really have air sweat all over yet. his face. Yeah. And, uh, but I thought Polly came off as very assertive and there seemed to be a real uh, equal relationship between uh, Ben and Polly. I like Annika Wills a lot. I wish more of her stuff had oh, yeah. survived because everything I've seen, I think she's... She's really good, and she's better than the scripts a lot of the time. And she's so striking in all those over-the-top fab outfits they put her in. She wears them very well. I think I've I think I've gone on record as being a fan of women of swinging London. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, well, you do host that website, right? <laughs> yeah, women of swinging London. Yeah, dot com. <laughs> I don't think we can leave War Machines without mentioning uh, the only time that the titled Doctor Who is used in a story, which is just a little bit of trivia, other than the fact that, I don't know, there's just something that just kills me about the way that computer says it, and the way... Bring me Doctor Who? The Doctor Who is required. It sounds so urgent. It's, it's going to be my new euphemism for when I want private time with my wife in the house in front of the kids. I'll just be like, Doctor Who is required. <laughs> Final thoughts on this? I do want to mention one little dark note. Uh, the Polly and her friend say that the doctor looks like that disc jockey, which at, when they're in the club. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was like, oh, that's an unusual reference. I tracked it down. They're referring to Jimmy Savile. Oh my god! Who... Well, Kelvin knows the so yeah Jim from Jim will fix it yeah Top of the Pops and all this uh, who was a figure in British television for life a long time for decades many many decades until he died sometime in the two thousands yeah and then right. a few years after his death it came out that he was a serial child molester oh that's and the part had I did not know. raped innumerable kids over the course of his entire career and many, because many, many... Because he looked many... like the first doctor? Was that his in? That's I terrible. I think <laughs> that was not his in. Uh, but it, it, it was... But yeah, I, it never occurred to me, yeah, they do kind of... William Hartnell and Jimmy Seville do kind of look alike. There, I looked at photos from the period. Uh, sometimes he had dark hair, sometimes he had white dyed hair. And then later, in later years, he had white hair and looked actually much more like William Hartnell now. But this was, this was a... It, it opened up this huge discussion about the BBC over the latter part of the 20th century because like many, 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 many people knew about this, but nobody said anything. And it was literally kept a secret until after he had died, until years after he had died. And then it all came out. It was bleh. It's like Bill Cosby now, only much worse because it had gone on for much longer. So that's a. We I'm sorry to be so well, dark. But that, well, no, well, yeah. Like, I, mean, I, mean, I looked at that Jim today. Will and Fix like, it was like a kids show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, there was a Colin Baker episode. Yeah, the the Inafix with Santarans. Yeah. Anywho, uh, so, yeah, I just okay. Comedy podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but here, yes, yeah, 1966. He was a big mod figure. Yeah. Um, enough that you can make a kind of joke like, "Oh, the doctor looks like this guy," and mm. it was completely innocent at the time. <laughs> but now looks very strange in retrospect. 
Other than the child molestation connection, how did we like the war machines? <laughs> I think it's a good, solid, middle-of-the-road Doctor Who thing with lots of clunky stuff yeah, to it. Yeah, it's very middle-of-the-road for me. Yeah. It, but I, I like it because it is unusual. It's looking forward to later Doctor Who. It's contemporary London. It's got British soldiers and things. It's kind of neat to see William Hartnell interact with the local English military and political structures. It's the only time we ever see it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of wish there had been more of it. I agree 100%. It's stylistically really fun to watch. Memorable for the trappings, for the setting, for yep. the introduction of Ben and Polly, and the lack of goodbye to Dodo. <laughs> uh, totally. It's I, completely scarred by that. That's so ridiculous. Yeah, I, I have this weird reaction to finding it simultaneously padded and not long enough. I get that. You know, where there's all those dumb warehouse scene shots that I that I thought were just kind of silly in there and took up space. And yet I wanted the, it to be expanded with, like, you know, Votan doing more uh, technological domination things. He only has one war machine. Keep that. Yeah. <laughs> and they keep changing the plates on it. <laughs> So you guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's time for Wonderful Afunctionalism, oh. which is our sort of catch-all round. And this week, we have something really special. Mm. Our good friend Peter Capaldi ah. sent us a few pages that he discovered in the BBC archives, which are the first draft of the first episode of the Patrick Troughton adventure, The Enemy of the World, which we talked about on the show wow. not very long ago. He must have listened to it. <laughs> And, and thought of us. Thank you, Pete. So, uh, we're going to read it here to you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never recorded, as far as we understand. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to read it out to you right now. Uh, Josh is going to play Giles. I'm going to play Astrid. Mm-hmm. And Kelvin is going to play Patrick Troughton, the second doctor here. Oh, okay. So, this is a scene that is titled, for some reason, The Doctor's Doubles, and it is an unreleased first draft of episode one of The Enemy of the World. Yes. And here we go. Come in here. What for? Where are you taking me? This will only be a moment. Just stand right there. There. Giles, what did I tell you? Why, it's remarkable. The resemblance is uncanny. Resemblance? What resemblance? It's astounding. He is the very spitting image of Salamander. Salamander? Who's, who's Salamander? Wait. Hang on. Come here. Stand in the light. Now, now that I see him close up, no, he doesn't quite look as much like Salamander as I thought. You're right. He sort of looks like... Oh, what's his name? It's on the tip of my tongue. That Catholic clergyman who persecuted the Huguenots. The Abbot of Amboise. Precisely. He looks just like the Abbot of Amboise. This is ridiculous. I'm the doctor. No, wait. That's not it. There was that merchant in ancient Pompeii. He sold marble? Oh, of course. Lobus Cassilius. What are you yammering about? No, not Lobus Cassilius. Look at the eyebrows. (laughs) Silly me. But someone very, very close to Lobus Cassilius. I know. Frobisher. What? The penguin chap? Talks like a RADA graduate trying to talk like Philip Marlowe? No, no, John Frobisher, permanent secretary to the Home Office. He had that bit of bother with the 456. I'm not Frobisher, I'm not Lobus Cassilius, and I most certainly am not a penguin. 
penguin. I'm the doctor. This is going to keep me up all night. Who does he look like? Commander Maxil? I don't know. I'd have to see him in a cape. Zoannon? I'd have to see him carved into a mountain. Megloth. I'd have to see him covered with thorns. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Maybe Princess Strello, Princess Astra. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit of a stretch. Of all the infernal idiocy! As carts, last of the tactories! Now, that is truly ridiculous. Who on earth has ever heard of Escarts? He's in the comics. Someone's bound to have read the comics. Enough! Horzel Gummidge. The Duke of Edinburgh. Tristan Barnum. Omega. Omega? Really? Well, Omega that time he was in Amsterdam. Oh, yes. Radagast the Brown. Richard E. Grant's drinking buddy in Whitnale and I. Richard E. Grant. Non-canonical. Oh. That guy who fought Thor in Thor the Dark World. The Guy who fought Sinbad in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. That guy who's just there for some reason in Alien 3. Enough! I am not Warzel Watsits. I am not Radagast the Brown, and I most definitely am not that guy. I am telling you once and for all, I am the Doctor! The Doctor! I've got it. It's so obvious now that I think of it. What? Tell me. He looks like that actor fellow. Played Robin Hood 60-some years ago, and the, and the priest who got skewered in the omen. Of course! Patrick, Patrick Troughton! Troughton. Uh, oh, my giddy aunt. And now round five, a brand new round. We're debuting this episode, Arcs of Infinity. Infinity, infinity, infinity. We can't afford a real echo effect, so it's low budget, just like Doctor Who. We'll be talking in these rounds about interconnected stories. Uh, and to kick this off, we've decided to talk about the first two War Doctor box sets yeah. from Big Finish. The War Doctor Volume 1, Only the Monstrous, and War Doctor Volume 2, Infernal Devices. And so, to kick us off, let's talk about uh, the first volume. Let's do it in linear order. Weird. This came out in December 2015. It is comprised of three stories, all of which are written by Nicholas Briggs. Um, it features John Hurt as the War Doctor, and as a added awesome bonus, we get uh, Jacqueline Pierce as Cardinal Alistra. Awesome is right. Yeah. Oh. Jacqueline Pierce, one of my favorites, Servalan from Blake 7. And if any of you guys have seen the 1966 Hammer film The Reptile, no one? I haven't had a chance yet. Oh my god. She is like the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. You have to you have to watch The Reptile. We'll well we'll have you come Hammer over and movies watch that were, were good for that. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh Terrific actress. John Hurt, by the way, wrote the introduction to her autobiography, which I have not yet read, but I have to think that they are friends. These days, she has an interesting life, by the way. She lives in South Africa, I believe, and is passionately committed to conservation issues, working mm. with orphaned velvet monkeys. Wow. That's kind really of, cool. Kind of gave up acting some time ago, and one of the reasons I was so surprised to see her back for this is because I thought she was permanently done with that. She was all just focused on conservation mm -hmm. stuff, but now here she is, being uh, an antagonist to John Hurt in these two story arcs, and I think in the next one that they have planned as well. Yeah, no, she's throughout all four box sets they planned for the War Doctor. There's and then four. There's okay. four in total, and then they are doing, after that, a prequel box set with Paul McGann, which she will also be in, like, the early days of the Time War, uh, before Night of the Doctor. So, when we talk about Only the Monstrous, which is the first of the two War Doctor arcs that we're going to talk about right now, it is not really an arc. 
per se. It's the all three of the stories are written and directed by Nicholas Briggs, and they're it's essentially one story in three acts. It's called The Innocent, The Thousand Worlds, and The Heart of the Battle. Yeah. But should we give a, a little bit of a synopsis? Yes. So it's the Time War. Listeners, Doctor Who fans will know this from Day of the Doctor. John Hurt has regenerated into the War Doctor in order to fight the Time War with the Daleks. So we pick up the War Doctor in the beginning of this uh, where he has just used a time destructor from the Dalek master plan to wipe out the Dalek fleet and he has been injured and he crash lands on Keska, Keska, the planet Keska, uh, where he is kind of nursed back to health and presumed dead by the Time Lords. And frankly, I think that's probably the most interesting part of this three-part story because we get to take a little breath from the frantic pace of Day of the Doctor and we get a little more insight into the War Doctor's character and a little bit where he is psychologically. But really that first story is just the War Doctor recuperating and getting yeah. a little caught up in a, a more parochial war between the planet Keska and another race of aliens. And then we get a jump in time yeah. um, when the Time Lords catch up with the War Doctor and discover that he is not dead from the Time Destructor. And we see the Daleks have taken over the planet Keska. And, and, yeah, it's um, at some point in the future. some point in the future. And the last two stories are a pretty standard Doctor Who fare of the War Doctor foiling the Daleks' plan to turn the Thousand Planets around Keska somehow into a flying <laughs> planets a la uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth, because Nick Briggs is obsessed with these early Dalek stories, and he will revisit elements <laughs> from those 60s Dalek stories over and over again. Yeah. But the one thing that, uh, that you didn't cover in your synopsis is that there's a rogue Time Lord who has gone to the Daleks with the goal of making peace. And he's made peace with the Daleks, by giving them this null zone over a thousand worlds where they can just do what they want and the Time Lords won't mess with them and if this peace can be established then the Time War will be over. The analogy to Neville Chamberlain agreeing with, <laughs> with Hitler to establish zones of influence in Europe before World War II is made explicit at the end of part two, when a chorus of Daleks say, Peace in our time! Peace in our time! Peace in our time! And that's the climax, and it goes out. So the central moral dilemma of this, or the moral topsy-turviness, is the doctor now having to be the guy who says, you have to fight. You can't make peace with the Daleks. You can't yeah. do it. It's not not a role that you would think the Doctor usually fills. No. Yet at the same time, yep. I think one of the problems of the War Doctor audios is that the War Doctor is not that bad compared to, I would say, half of his previous and future regenerations in his behavior. We see... The seventh doctor just blow up Scarrow without any thought. The sixth doctor is often doing very pragmatic, seemingly callous things. We just talked about the first doctor sending the war machines in to blow up Votan with very little concern over uh, who's going to get caught in the crossfire. So that was one disappointment I had with this, is that I, I feel like I'd like to see a couple more really hard decisions. 
I mean, the doctor was advocating for war in the first appearance with the Daleks. We had the peaceful falls, and he yep. was saying, no, go fight him. So this, as much as the audio tries to present that this is a shocking moment where the doctor is against the peacemakers, yeah, the, it doesn't make him monstrous by any means. The moral conundrums are frankly not that tough. No. Peace with the Daleks is never an option. It mm -hmm. has never been an option in the entire history of Doctor Who, except for little blips and one-offs and Dalek sec and things yep. like that. But, but we know, as well as the Doctor does, that they are fundamentally defined by their treachery and their evil. Uh, it's if if they could make peace, they wouldn't be Daleks. If it was something like the Ice Warriors or even the Santarans, this might have been a, uh, a murkier, more interesting mm -hmm. choice. But of course, the, do the Doctor is going to be right about this. I mean, it's impossible that he couldn't be. And the the moral choices that he's forced to make in the story are not at all different from the sort of choices that other doctors have to make, mm -hmm. and they're not anywhere near as dark sometimes. Uh, at the end of part three, spoilers, he has to sacrifice the guys in the capsule who are going down to blow out the magnetic core of Keska, but they are literally begging him to do it. You have to sacrifice us, otherwise billions of people will die. And he's still kind of, mm, yeah, okay. And someone else offers, like, I'll do it. Rejoice. The character rejoices. I'll do it if you don't want to do it. He's like, no, no, it's my choice. But it's impossible. You can't even blame yourself in a situation like that. There's no conundrum. It's a clear moral choice. Well, I, I think I like this a little more than you guys did. I guess I'm going to have to uh, make a, a rather odd comparison with the movie The Man of Steel. What I always wanted to see in a Superman movie was Superman versus an opponent who was like at his level of power and you know focused on his Kryptonian heritage. And Man of Steel has all of those elements absolutely in it. And then I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like the movie. It was a depressing experience, and it literally made me question every creative choice I've ever made in my life. Oh, okay. If, if like, I, like, I, okay, this has all the elements I'm looking for in a Superman movie, and I hate it. That carries over into only the monstrous a little bit. Uh, if you see the War Doctor actually doing these super huge, intense, giant, tough sacrifices for the, for the greater good to stop the Daleks... I don't know if that would be that enjoyable an experience. You know, I totally agree with you, and I think that the writers of both of these arcs must agree with you, too, because mm -hmm. they, they're playing with the idea of tough moral choices, mm -hmm. but the nature of Doctor Who means that you can't go really very far. I've, I've actually been reading lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff about war in the last year for various other projects, and there's just nothing related to real moral questions about warfare in either of these two arcs that we're talking about. There's the sort of decisions that generals and politicians make in World War II or whatever are light years beyond anything that John Hurt has to make here. Are we torturing prisoners? Are we bombing cities full of civilians? Are we dropping atomic bombs? You know, things like that. Very, very dark stuff that I just don't think that Doctor Who is capable of doing and still being Doctor Who. This is fundamentally a children's program, and you can push it and try to pretend that it's adult, but 
to really make it an adult program breaks it. Maybe this is a good point to segue into the second volume yeah. because I do think the second volume sidesteps a little of this um, because it's in the title, Infernal Devices, mm -hmm. by focusing on the heinous weapons used in the war. And mm -hmm. so we can center on that instead of his actions so much. We've got terrible weapons. I agree. And this is a good segue for me to say the final thing that I want to say about Only the Monstrous. The Daleks' plan was to install nuclear cores at the center of a thousand worlds and launch them all at Gallifrey at the speed of light, which I gotta say is badass. That's a pretty that's, that a, is, that's a hell of a weapon. That is a terrific infernal device. So when I heard that, I literally laughed out loud. Like, oh, uh, the yes. Time Lords are also smug about their little induction barrier. It's a heavy machine gun made out of a thousand planets. <laughs> Loved it. So, that's yeah. like that's like Dark Side from DC Comics or something. <laughs> it really is. So the, the the second arc, Infernal Devices, is three separate stories. Legion of the Lost, written by John Dorney, A Thing of Guile, written by Phil Mulrine, and The Neverwhen, written by Matt Fitton, who we talked about earlier. Uh, these have links between them, but they are mostly independent stories in a way that only the monstrous was not. Uh, the first one takes place on a planet where the Time Lords are working with a race of Technomancers to bring dead Time Lord soldiers back from the dead to fight again. The second one takes place on a secret Dalek base where, what are the, Dalek, what are the Daleks doing? Oh, it turns out that they're retro-engineering Daleks into Khaled's so that they can get the Khaled-ness of their original form so that they can continue to fight the war. Something that reminded me of the uh, Cybermen deception in The Harvest mm -hmm. that we talked about some episodes ago. And then the third adventure, The Neverwhen, probably my favorite of all of yeah. these six, by the way. Yes, so mine too. Uh, mine too. Uh, was a planet where a Time Lord device had gone off that in a war between Dalek forces and Time Lord forces was constantly bringing the dead back to life and bringing them back into previous technological levels. So sometimes Daleks uh, would be fighting with energy weapons against Time Lords who would be fighting with sticks and clubs. And, and sometimes, sometimes the Daleks the would be Khaleds. It's along their whole like uh, species history. Yeah. And sometimes, and this is the big reveal, of course, the Time Lords would be Dalek-like fighting Daleks who could be mistaken for Time Lords mm -hmm. because they had absorbed one another's technology to that degree. Uh, the overarching point of all three of these is that in a war, your moral degradation happens to such a degree that there is no uh, distinction after a certain point between you and your enemies because yeah. you're using the same sorts of weapons. The, the use of these terrible weapons makes the war analogy a little more interesting while still keeping it feeling like we talked about it's... Doctor Who. Yeah. And while these are dark weapons, it still feels fantastical. And so it's making its points about war without it being too on the nose. It's not peace in our time, peace in our time. Mm -hmm. um, it, it also fulfills some of the, the promise of the concept of a time war that even in Day of the Doctor, which I love, still just felt like people with laser guns. It's surprising to me that we haven't really seen a Doctor Who story set in a place where time has just utterly gone berserk and things Evolve backwards and evolve forwards, and and uh, 
you know, tanks are replaced with horses. I'm sure the comics did that at some point. Some Steve Parkhouse comic yeah. must have done it. But but that's the sort of thing I've always kind of wanted to see, or or hear in this case. We also get a, a more intense relationship, an almost companion doctor relationship between uh, the war doctor and Cardinal Alistra. So yeah. I think the entertainment quality goes up in that second box set for that. She puts him on an Artron leash, yes. which I think is very funny. Like, literally keeps him on a leash. And they're keep, they keep sadomasochistic. To, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Keep trying to outsmart each other, and he gets out of the leash, but really, she knew he'd get out of the leash, and it's another trap. And so, they're just playing each other continually. I don't know if this was just my imagination or, or not, but it seems like the music and sound design in Infernal Devices is just a couple factors more than any other Doctor Who I've ever seen. Like, there, there were points when I was wondering, like, am I actually in into this as much just because the music and the sound design is so huge in it? It's true. At one point during the Neverwhen, yeah. I was like, is there some baby around? Because I was out in public, mm -hmm. right? And is there a baby crying at some point? I'm turning around and I'm mm -hmm. looking as a... And it turned out to be just buried in the background of the sound design of the Neverwhen. It's when one of the time fluxes had happened and changed all of the soldiers into babies. Oh, that's why they were getting slaughtered. Oh, Baby God. slaughtered. Oh, man, that's hilarious. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I did literally think that it was out in the real world. So, yeah, I agree with you. I thought it was excellent. I also want to... Uh, I'm going to make a supercut at mm -hmm. some point of all of the people screaming from <laughs> all of these six that sound sort of orgasmic. <laughs> because, oh boy, I mean, some of this Jacqueline Pierce stuff, yeah. and, and, uh, and especially that woman who plays the companion in Legion of the Lost, who dies like eight or nine different yeah. times or whatever. She just works it. She's like Ben in the war machine. She's just, just dying and screaming or whatever. It's just, oh, it's wonderful stuff, you guys. Speaking of sound, I do want to mention the um, very militaristic reworked theme yeah. they use for oh, the yeah. doctor, which I get a huge kick out of. I think it's great, yeah. It's especially, I think it's almost more effective as the outro theme when it kicks in as a sort of cliffhanger or end of story sting, it's really quite clever. So final thoughts. Uh, I think we're going to probably return to the War Doctor audios when they make more. They're really enjoyable. I'm still waiting and hoping for like that standout story so that the War Doctor gets his Caves of Androzani, his yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pyramids they of Mars, or some single story that mm -hmm. is just They didn't wow. spark for me. I mean, I'll, I'll watch John Hurt in anything. Of course, I've said before, he's one of my favorite actors, and it's wonderful that he's Doctor Who now. Mm -hmm. uh, but none of these except maybe the Neverwhen yep. really elevated beyond just normal Doctor Who. Yeah, overall, I, um, I thought they did a, a good job just tonally of doing something that feels like a bridge point between the old series and the new series, and yet is kind of its own thing. That's a very odd tonal juggling act, and maybe it had some not-so-great points in Only the Monstrous or whatever, but it, it just the tone of it was amazing. I think it's worth it to hear John Hurt just embody the Doctor. Yeah. There is the one little catch that they, they have to deal with in an ongoing series of stories is that he doesn't call himself the Doctor and they really struggle with it and it gets a little old because he has to constantly be like don't call me the Doctor. It's, it's very tedious. Uh, he has a nice little wrap up speech toward the end of The Neverwhen which is pretty good but 
after six stories of having heard him deny that he's the doctor, it's... I feel like they should just embrace something. At one point, he calls himself John Smith, and I almost think they should just go with that for the whole audio so we don't have to hear him say the same speech over and over. And that's not their fault. They inherited that from Day of the Doctor. It's it's very awkward to have a lead character with... Literally no name. (laughs) Or yells at you every time you try to call him the doctor. So, Bob, stop calling me that! (laughs) I'm not Bob anymore! Dave, no! Dave was someone else! (laughs) Well, that's just about it for uh, another edition of Get Off My World. Uh, Next time, uh, we'll be starting a special uh, two-episode arc, shall we say, Focusing on the Eighth Doctor, and our guest will be none other than Brian Schomburg, graphic designer at Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, we'll be discussing uh, the the notorious Fox TV movie uh, featuring uh, the Eighth Doctor from 1996. 20th anniversary. Yes, that's 20 years ago, uh, in case you wow. felt like you didn't feel old. <laughs> Uh, we'll also be discussing uh, the new Eighth Doctor audio uh, adventure, Doom Coalition, in Arcs of Infinity, and uh, just a whole lot of other uh, Eighth Doctor-related things, including, eventually, a couple episodes from now, uh, the novel Alien Bodies, which is by Lawrence Miles, Lawrence Miles, who's uh, one of the better Doctor Who novels out there. So, um, going to be a great couple of episodes, folks, and um, until next time, uh, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And we're saying, Get out my world! My stasers always at the ready.